0: Good morning. Good morning. And before we open with prayer, there's announcements I have today. Uh, our friend and class member Dennis Hilton passed away uh, June 28, 2023, and the celebration of life for Dennis will be held July 9, uh, and with visitation starting at 4 p.m. and services at 4:30 at the Hamilton Community Church, and then memorial services for Pastor Ralph Lafave, Christie's father. Uh, will be 2 p.m. next week here in this room at 2 p.m. Let's go ahead and open class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and mercy. And at times like these, when there are losses in our life, it just reaffirms for us how desperately we need you and how we long for a better world and a better kingdom to come. And we, we ask that you will empower and enlighten us to fulfill your mission to take the final message of mercy to the world, to lighten the world that you may soon come and we can be past this this problem of sin and pain and sickness and death. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson three in the quarterly Ephesians, and the title for the lesson this week is The Power of the Exalted Jesus. And the memory verse is Ephesians 1, 19 through 20, and out of the New King James it reads, through the Holy Spirit, believers may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. At his right hand in heavenly places. His power. When you hear that, what do you, what do you think? His power. Are, 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 we, are we thinking here creative power? Physical power, thunder, lightning, flaming swords, nuclear, cosmic winds, atomic forces. Is that what we're thinking when we think of his power? And let's be very clear. We believe God is the creator, and he is omnipotent in physical and creative power. He governs all creation, and all things are sustained by him and hold together through him. We never want to suggest anything that diminishes his physical might and power. Okay, let's be very omnipotent. Power beyond our imagination. However, is the physical might and power of God what wins the war against Satan? Love. Is that the power that wins the war? Could God have used physical might and power to destroy Satan at the very outset and won the war?
1: No. no.
0: Yes. And won the war. Would rebellion against God, the breach in trust, the growth of fear and selfishness have been resolved if God would have used might and power to put Satan down in the very beginning? No. No. How about at any time after that? No. Can he win by might and power? No. If God is the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death as external punishment for sin that you would not otherwise reap, does that lead to more love and trust? Or does it make you need to be protected from him, make you worry, have fear? Can you get love, devotion, loyalty, and trust, friendship even, by threatening to kill people who won't give it to you? No. no. This is why, so what, the, what is the war over? Paul says in Second Corinthians 10, one of my favorite texts, you know, I quote it all the time. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. They use coercive might and power, but we don't use those, those weapons. On the contrary, they have divine power. Our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. And notice what we demolish. And think about where these types of things operate to have stronghold. I will tell you, they have a strong hold over hearts and minds. That's where they have a stronghold. We demolish every, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the central issue in the war. Who do you trust? who do you understand God to be? the knowledge of God? And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Jesus. The war, Satan is the father of lies. And he lies about, and he started those lies where? In heaven. So do you think God, when Satan began his rebellion in heaven, calls all the heavenly beings together and says, Satan has lied about me. He says that I am not just. Well, I'm not only just, I'm also love. And you know it's true because I've said so. And because Satan has spoken spoken falsely, he's borne false witness against me, because I'm just, justice requires I kill him, execute him for his disobedience. And that's the just and right thing to do. And you can trust me on that because I said so. Now, does anyone else doubt my justice? (laughs) Would such actions result in the resolution of fear? Would the lies of Satan, if, if Lucifer had been eliminated in that way from the very beginning, would the lies that he told have been eliminated in the hearts and minds, or would they have spread? How does such methods look in the church today? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. How about if you have a Bible text, what we call proof texting? I have a text and it says God is just. Well, who do you believe inspired the Bible? God through the Bible tells us, holy men through the Spirit wrote as they were led by the Spirit. So the Bible truths come from people or come from God. So if the Bible says God is just, who's saying it?
1: But there's people that say that in the translation from the original, they put their own thoughts in it. Therefore, it is not truly
0: to the to the degree you're reading a truth out of the Bible. Who put that truth there? So if you say the Bible says it, you're really saying God says it. Does God win his war with proof text? The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Claims. Can you win trust by claiming you're just? By evidence. evidence. Oh, I like that. I like that. And this is what the Bible does. It does more than just give a, a series of claims. The Bible does. Think about the text that says God is love. That text is true, but selecting it out moving it from the rest of Scripture, and just putting it out there by itself is simply a claim. It has no value. What gives that text value is its setting in the rest of Scripture that reveals God in action, becoming incarnate, self-sacrificially giving himself. That is not a claim. That's deed. That's achievement. That's accomplishment. That's history. We see love lived out in the life of Jesus. And then the claim has meaning if it's attached to reality. So God demonstrates his righteousness or character. He reveals it. And so Paul wrote, and this is Romans 3. It should be 25 and 26. I don't know if I I think that there's a typo there. Yeah, that should be 25 and 26. It's a typo. This is from the Good News Translation. It says, God offered him, that's Jesus, so that by his blood he should become the means by which people's sins are forgiven through their faith in him. God did this in order to demonstrate his righteousness. In the past, he was patient and overlooked people's sins, but in the present time, he deals with their sins in order to demonstrate his righteousness. And by the way, the Greek for righteousness is also translated, same word? Justice. justice. So some versions say he did this to demonstrate his justice. I like righteousness because righteousness doesn't make you think legal justice in English language makes you think legal. It's not, actually. It's doing what's right, the right thing. In this way, God shows that he himself, he's revealing, not declaring. He's demonstrating, according to Scripture, that he himself is righteous or just, same Greek word, and that he puts right or justifies everyone who believes in Jesus. It's a revelation of reality of who God is. It's a revelation of truth, not a declaration but a demonstration. So consider this quote I'm going to read to you. We're going to go through it and unpack it from the book Patriarchs and Prophets. This quote gives us insight into what Seventh-day Adventist Church was called into existence to teach and to preach. It will reveal what is necessary, what is the power necessary to win the war, and how imposed rules... Legal declarations. Yeah, the, the quote shouldn't actually be up yet, but that's OK. We're, we're still learning uh, you know, the quote goes when I start. so um, It will reveal what is necessary to win the war, and how imposed rules, legal declarations, external might and power, proclamations, proof texts, doctrinal statements, even true ones. Are insufficient to win the war. The SDA church was called people, called into existence to lead people out of a legal religion and into a reality-based understanding and relationship with God. How reality works is God created it. So consider this message, and then ask the question if you believe what you've been reading in our quarterlies for the last 10 years or more presents this message or something more similar to what the Jews were believing 2,000 years ago when they rejected Christ. With the right Sabbath, the right tithe, the right feast days, the right sanctuary, the right health message, they had the right doctrinal list, but something was wrong since that rejected Christ. So Starting with the quote, even when he was cast out of heaven, that's saying, infinite wisdom did not destroy Satan. Why? Infinite wisdom? So it was wise to let the rebel, the, the, the liar, the fraud, the murderer from the beginning, the, the, the devil, the evil one, the, the, the source of all corruption, it was wise to let him live? That's what this says. Infinite wisdom did not destroy Satan. But if God runs his universe on rules, and Satan broke the rules, why not call Satan before the heavenly council? Play a recording. I'm sure God has a better monitoring system than we have. Play a recording of Satan's false statements against God. He's got the evidence. He's got the proof. Then have God take the stand and give testimony, this is not true, I am just, Satan has lied, And all those who believe Satan are now liars with him and found guilty, condemned by my judicial, infinite, perfect law. Since I am completely just, I am now going to execute Satan for his crimes against me and my government. Does anyone here believe that I am not just?
1: Had he done that, he would have been revealing himself to be exactly what Satan accused him of being.
0: Well said. One of the angels said, well, God, of course we know you're just. We've always believed you're just. Uh, uh, But this doesn't seem like like it's very loving to to behave this way. We also thought you were love. Don't you love? Well, you were not wrong, God might say, to believe that that I am love. And you can know that I am love because I'm telling you that I am love. And, And this is how love acts. Love always holds people accountable and does just punishments for wrongdoing. It wouldn't be love if I let him get away with it. So I'm required by not only my justice, but my love to kill them. Don't you understand this? All of works. So why did God not act in this way? Infinite wisdom didn't do this. Human wisdom, you read this all the time. In fact, there was a review article like two weeks ago that made this entire argument that this is how God's love and justice works. He's going to torture and kill people but infinite wisdom didn't do it. Continue with the quote, since only the service of love can be acceptable to God, the allegiance of his creatures must rest upon a conviction of his justice and benevolence. What kind of allegiance is this? The allegiance of his creatures must rest upon a conviction of his justice. What kind of allegiance is that? Heartfelt. Heartfelt. Can such loyalty, this type of allegiance, this allegiance is loyalty, faithfulness, commitment to, dedication for. That's what allegiance is. We're we're loyal to. Can you get that through any type of legislative action and in and law enforcement? Understand the penal legal system is a fraud. It's and I'm going It's Satan's mischaracteri- mischaracterization. Of God's true government. So how can angels know, or humans know, that God is just and benevolent? Can you just know that through claims, through text, through written words, or do you need actual evidence, demonstration? And isn't the Bible a demonstration of how God has dealt with the sin problem through history, his actions, ultimately in sacrificing himself for our salvation?
1: But late Satan leads people to believe when they read the Old Testament, they see, kill them, kill them, kill them and all the babies and the animals too, and kill them. And if they don't take time to think or understand, they come across with a, an unjust-sounding God, a penalizing sound of God.
0: So if you um, were um, from a primitive tribe somewhere in the world, never seen modern medicine... Some missionaries, maybe uh, some medical missionaries have come into your community and they discover a child who is suffering from acute appendicitis. Clear, classic. Acu- the child's appendix is going to rupture, but, but they have, the, the, they have their, their remote surgical tent. They have all the equipment. They could quickly do a, a surgery and save this child, and so they do. But the villagers have never seen anything like this. Somebody peeks around the corner, sees they grab this child, throw him up on a table, get out a knife, start cutting his belly open. (laughs) What do you think they run back and tell all the other villagers? (laughs) We have invaders that are cutting people open like pigs. They're sacrificing them on some altar to some pagan god. They're going to eat us. They're going to kill us. This is how many people who draw the conclusion you do when they read the Old Testament. They have no understanding of context and what's actually transpired. The context of the Old Testament is Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve sinned, God promises in Eden, before he even tosses them out of the garden, that a Savior is coming to destroy sin and Satan and save the human race. The promised Messiah, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent's head. The entire Old Testament narrative is God working to fulfill that promise while Satan is actively working to crush the avenue through which. And this is why the focus of Old Testament is upon the descendants of Abraham, but not through Ishmael, not through um, his other children, but through Isaac. And and then Isaac's descendants, but not through Esau through Jacob and Jacob's descendants, not through Dan, but down through Judah, because we focus all the way down through history to the promised Messiah. That's why we keep focusing and narrowing our focus through history. And we see Satan constantly working to try to destroy that group of people because he wants to stop Messiah from coming. And so God is intervening from time to time to obstruct or stop Satan's forces from shutting down Messiah. And every one of those actions in Old Testament times is simply what the Bible calls sleep. This is not the death of the wages of sin. Every one of those people is rising again. And so when you understand what's happening, this is God therapeutically cutting out some necrotic tissue, putting them in sleep mode, and there's a resurrection, either righteous or resurrection of damnation, where everybody finishes their life one way or the other. But people will pick up a little text here, pick up a little text there, not understanding what's happening, like seeing the surgeon saving somebody's life and accuse them of, accuse God of being abusive. So, this type of allegiance, this is allegiance of loyal love, devotion, because we understand how God actually runs his universe and his character and his methods and his principles. This cannot be achieved through claims, it's only through functional, observable reality and God's actions in that reality. Continuing with the quote, notice what the author says next as to why God did not destroy Satan. The inhabitants of heaven and the other worlds, being unprepared to comprehend the nature or consequences of sin, would not have seen the justice of God in the destruction of Satan. Does this say, would not have seen the justice of God in destroying Satan? Does it say God is going to destroy Satan? But people who have the assumption that that's how his law works will read this and say, see, God's going to destroy him. It doesn't actually say that. It only says that if God permitted Satan's destruction, God didn't intervene to prevent it, they would have misunderstood why death came. They would have concluded that God was, was, was the source of suffering and death. God is not the source of death, folks. God is the source of life. The wage scripture says the wages of sin is sin when full grown brings forth, that's James chapter one. Uh, Galatians 6, eight, those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. But Satan's view of it is, guys, sin actually doesn't harm you. It gets you in legal trouble with the ruling authority. And God is required by law to use his power to put you down and kill you unless you can get somebody else to take your place and he kills them instead and you claim the payment, then he will be satisfied that someone died and he won't have to kill you. There's really nothing wrong with sin. It doesn't harm you. God harms you for it.
1: And they go even further in some cultures. They believe, or religions, they believe that sin... That evil has to exist you have to have both the balance of evil the yin and the yang yang, yeah yeah and you have to you know but
0: but understand the penal legal lie is that God is the source of inflicted death and that then gives the yin and the yang because if you actually believe God is injustice the source of death inflicted he's the eternal God That means for all eternity, life and death exist in God. He's the source of both life, and he's the source of both death, and so we have a universe in which life and death exist eternally. When when did the um, inhabitants of heaven or earth know what death was? Because...
1: There wasn't any death I even
0: That's what we're reading right here. That's what we're going to unpack. So that's a, that's a great question. The inhabitants of heaven and the world's being unprepared to comprehend the nature and consequence of sin could not have seen the justice of God and the destruction of Satan. Next sentence. He, had he been immediately blotted out of existence, some would have served God from fear rather than love. Can you get faithful friends... Can you get faithful friends... By threatening to kill them if they're not your faithful friend. Yes. God is even more faithful than that statement, in that God created Satan, knowing what would happen. let Let me just rephrase. He created Lucifer. Yep. So he is true. That's right. God doesn't manipulate, even with foreknowledge, the other beings wouldn't even be aware of. He doesn't manipulate for his own ends. He gives real freedom. Yeah, that's well said. So why would some of the symples angels serve God from fear rather than love if Satan was immediately blotted out from existence if his sin severed his relationship with God who is the source of life and God allowed that relationship to be permanently severed so Satan doesn't have life in himself original unborrowed underived he is a created being his life comes from God so if his sin separates him from the source of life and God permits it to be complete and thus for Satan dies why would that have caused the angels to continue to doubt God's goodness they have fear of him instead of love.
1: To you, it could happen to me if I have a question. Maybe he will wipe me out.
0: So they, so, so they would have misunderstood why he died, that it wasn't sin and his own choice to separate himself from life. They would have perceived that God was somehow an inflictor of death, a punisher, which is what Satan's lies were from the beginning. Remember, I don't have this quote in here, but um, Desire of Ages, page 7, either 61 or 59. But in the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed, that if man should sin, that God could not forgive him. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. In the opening of the controversy, this was his position. So if you disobey and you ask questions, God, I've never said God's not powerful. Of course he's powerful. He's got the power. He's God. He's just not trustworthy with it. If you step out of line and ask questions, he'll kill you. This was Satan's allegation. So if God allows that to happen at this point, and the intelligence is having never seen death— Satan's lie would have been fueled. God must have killed him. God must have done it. Satan must have been right. Don't ask questions around here. Better, better watch out. Eggshells. Walk on eggshells.
1: They had in heaven designed law.
0: Of course they had. That's the only law. Ellen White wrote other places. It wasn't
1: the Ten Commandments.
0: No. So the, No. The, the Ten Commandments are a distillation of the eternal law that was specifically written for fallen humanity. For fallen humanity. Uh, did, did Adam and Eve in Eden before their sin have a law that said that their sins would pass down three and four generations into their children? No! no! Th- that law didn't exist in Eden because they hadn't sinned and there was no sins to pass down. That, that, that the Ten Commandment law was written for fallen humanity. How about this? Did angels in heaven have a law to honor their mothers and fathers? <laughs> no, that's written for human beings, not for angels. But the law is based upon the two eternal principles of love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those principles of love were already in heaven. And if you have the principle of love in your heart for God and others, you don't bear false witness, which is what Lucifer is doing in heaven. So he's breaking the law even though it hadn't been written on stone because it's an act of selfishness, ego, pride. So if God would have eliminated Satan and even had done it with power, that makes sense to us as why the angels would have feared God... We just saw God use power to kill him. uh, That that makes sense. That would be very intimidating, right? But why then if God didn't use power, if God just let natural consequences, the separation of sin that it has from God, and and just let Satan reap, as it says in Galatians 6, 8, those who sort of the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. If he just reaps it, why would that have caused the problem? It wouldn't have been seen that way. It wouldn't have been seen that way. Even though it was that way, it would have been misunderstood and misperceived, and the lie would have been operating that it wasn't natural, it was inflicted. That's why, exactly why. So, notice what the author says next. The influence of the deceiver would not have been fully destroyed, nor would the spirit of rebellion have been utterly eradicated, if God would have allowed Satan to die, and not so infinite wisdom realized that he must Continue his existence in rebellion longer. Infinite wisdom. Because we have to destroy the roots, which are not physical roots. They're operating in hearts and minds. Continuing on. For the good of the entire universe, for the good of the entire universe, through ceaseless ages... Satan must more fully develop his principles, that his charges against the divine government might be seen in their true light by all created beings, and that the justice and mercy of God and the immutability of his law might be forever placed beyond question. What's being described here? Is this God winning a legal case, or is this describing God winning a war for loyalty, love, and devotion? Evidence. Yes, to eliminate from the hearts and minds of his creatures doubts about him, the lies that were told. You can't eliminate that by threatening people. If you believe that about me, you better not believe it now. Because it's a lie, and I'm telling you it's a lie. And if you believe it, and I find out you're believing it, I'll have to punish you. Is that why you had to create our world? Because the other worlds have already shown their devotion to God, and so that. Incorrect. No, not why. If you read Ellen White, she says that. Uh, that the plan for this earth was already in existence before the rebellion. And that after rebellion, they moved forward with their plan to create this earth. But this earth was already part of the plan. It wasn't in response to the, to the rebellion.
1: But also, the other planets all had a chance with the
0: tree. And she writes that all of them have trees of knowledge. So every intelligent being, this is what it says in this quote, for the good of the entire universe, all intelligent beings... Satan's existence was continued. And you see evidence of that in Scripture. Can you give me any any places in Scripture where you have all the intelligent beings in the universe considering these things? Job. Job. First chapter of Job. The heavenly council is called together. And Satan comes from walking to and fro on the earth, presenting lies again. And God allows, in that case, things to happen to Job, but God doesn't cause it. But what happens in Job's life? Who gets blamed for what's happening to Job? God. God. God, this is how the world this is how Christianity works still you see a tornado, you see a flood you see a hurricane, God is punishing for some sin of God. act of God in your insurance companies, God gets blamed
1: I find it interesting that when God and Job finally do have a discussion, God never does say that Satan's the one that did it he didn't, he didn't blame he Satan blame. he said, do you know me how well do you know me If you know me that well, or think you do, I will give you evidence after evidence that I will do the right thing. He -hmm. never does blame Satan, which I find very interesting.
0: But it is true, your point, that the angels were already in existence when earth was made. Job 38, verse, I think, 7 or 8, says that the, the angels sang together for joy when the foundations of the earth were laid. So this was already going on. They were already there. And then the rebellion was already going on. And God then moved forward with his plan to create the earth, but it wasn't an afterthought. This was all part of the plan. And my view is that, that if God's intentions were correct, that they were to govern this planet, and, and he told them, be fruitful and multiply, before they sinned. Didn't he tell them that before they sinned? Yes. And so they were created in God's image. And as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come into unity and create these two separate individuals, the two shall become one, they unite themselves in love, literally giving of themselves in love and bring forth new life in their image. This was part of the design to reveal something about Godhead. And then we have all these other living organisms and animals that are on a plane that can relate. Even today, still, if you have a pet dog, it can love you and relate to you, but it doesn't relate to you on the level of a human. God is on a level above all the angels and humans. and There's a gap. What do you think is the bigger gap? The gap between your dog and you? or the gap between God and you, <laughs> which is the bigger gap, oh, okay? It's a bigger gap between God and us, but so this whole, and this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.9, we are a theater, a lesson book to angels and to men, and so God, I think, created us for a purpose, but that purpose was always there to give us these abilities, but now, now there was a time. what well, he was going to do it But now the timing allows for something to be said about God to be revealed through evidence that he shared procreative ability. He didn't selfishly hoard that power. He shared dominion, created a world for for humans to govern in God's image. And if they would have stayed faithful and loyal, what would the universe learn about how God runs the universe if Adam and Eve would have run the planet in a sinless world? Would they have had children that they abused and lorded over and dominated and enslaved? Would they have gone and set up slaughterhouses to kill the animals and eat them? Would they have done that in a sinless world? And so the universe would have drawn lessons. Wow, God didn't create us to enslave us and and serve him. He's giving of himself always for us, like Adam and Eve are constantly giving for their children.
1: Tim, we're told to fear the one that can take our individuality.
0: Not God. Yes. Yet
1: some people interpret that very verse to mean God. Yep, they do. They they, they think God's the one that you should fear, but he's the one that takes hell back.
0: So let's continue with the quote Satan's rebellion was to be a lesson to the universe through all coming ages, a perpetual testimony to the nature of sin and its terrible results. The working out of Satan's rule, its effect upon both men and angels, would show what must be the fruit of setting aside divine authority. What law lens do you hear that through? Divine authority. Break the rules? Is that what it's saying? No, no. Or do you see that when you step out of harmony with God and how he built life to operate, for instance, you break the laws of health. He built the laws that our physiology run on. And if you knowingly break those and smoke two packs a day, what do you reap from that? Is that an infliction from God? If you decide that you don't want to live in harmony with the law of gravity and do what's healthy, you step off a 500 foot building, did God send an angel to break your legs when you hit the bottom as punishment for, for disobedience? I mean, the reality teaches us these things. Life and health only exist in harmony with God and how He constructed life to operate, His laws. And Satan's working is always breaking them, and it leads to chaos, pain, suffering, sickness, and ultimately death. Continue on with the quote. It would testify that the existence of God's government is bound up. It would testify with the existence of God's government is bound up the well being of all his creatures. That's design law. Laws of health. Do you understand? Harmonizing with laws of health are not rules. It's like, oh you know what? I understand there's a law of respiration, but that's a lot of work to have to breathe every day. It's just not fair. No, breathing is actually, if you've ever been in a situation, you maybe were sick and, and had bad asthma or, 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 or pneumonia and you were having trouble breathing, uh, you want the sickness gone and it's not work to breathe at all. It's wonderful. But it's a law. You want to live, you got to breathe. Thus the history of this terrible experiment of rebellion was to be perpetual safeguard to all holy beings, to prevent them from being deceived as to the nature of transgression, to save them from committing sin and suffering its penalty. That's why Satan's existence was continued so that the lies about God and God's methods, principles, and government would be fully eradicated and people would realize and angels would realize and the intelligent beings and unfallen worlds would realize that God's laws are the design laws upon which life are built and you can't break them without suffering injury and ultimately death.
1: And I find it interesting that uh, in the new earth we will continue to keep the seventh day. And I think part of the reason we do that is to remember this this seven day or seven thousand year experiment, you know, example that we'll come and and think about that, you know, think about and that's, uh, reflecting
0: on all the evidence.
1: Yeah, even in heaven, will be reminded.
0: So our, our, we started our class with a verse about Christ's power. I went through this. We're talking about the power of God that eliminates sin. Did you in this in this quote from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 40, 42 That you just went through. Did you hear about God's power to win the war? And what was the power that was described in that account that wins the war?
1: The power of truth.
0: The power of truth and love. That's exactly right. And Paul refers to this in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For it is the gospel. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed—a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, as it is written, "The righteous will live by faith." And whatever is not of faith, Paul writes later, is sin. sin. Breach of trust, not trusting God, leads is self centeredness, which is rebellion against God. That's what sin is. Gospel power. Is the power of the good news about God, His character of love, and His principles of truth. And that good news frees us from the lies that break trust and result in selfishness, which is sin. This is the power, the divine power that Amal strongholds. Uh, Sunday's lesson, it says, What does it really mean to pray without ceasing? It cannot mean that we are always kneeling before God in prayer. It does mean that blessed by God's Spirit, we move through life with hearts open to the presence and power of God, seeking cues for thanksgiving to him. It means a readiness to process the issues of life in the presence of God, to seek divine counsel as we experience the twists and turns of life that life brings. It means living not in estrangement from God, but in engagement with him, ever open to divine leading. What does it mean to you to pray without ceasing? In the attitude of prayer, whatever you
1: do. Attitude of prayer, okay. I mean, in all aspects of your life, whether it's work or play or counsel, whatever, you're thinking to yourself, you know, what would God do? How does he feel about this?
0: I like it. As I was reflecting on the class this week... I, uh, I, I got a quote out of a book called Christ Object Lessons. I'm going to share it with you, and I want you to tell me if you agree that this represents what prayer without ceasing is, or do you feel like this is kind of misrepresentative? Is, is this real? Is this accurate, or what? So this is uh, out of Christ Object Lessons, page uh, 129. It says, Our life is to be bound up with the life of Christ. We are to draw constantly from him, partaking of him, the living bread that came down from heaven, drawing from a fountain, ever fresh ever giving forth an abundant treasure. I'm going to pause right there. Th- these are metaphors. These are word descriptions. The bread of heaven isn't something you bake in your oven. That's a metaphor. But it teaches a lesson. Bread is nutrition, something you ingest. It gets broken down into molecules, becomes building blocks to give you energy and strength. The bread of heaven is something similar, but it's not physical. It's... The Word, Jesus is the Word, made flesh. And we are to eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, John 6, 53. And as we take bread into the body, and it becomes building blocks of the body, we take in the Word of truth from Christ, and it becomes building blocks to our ideas, our thinking, our belief system. And it gives us strength and encouragement. And so this is is what it's speaking of. We have to partake of the truth as Jesus has brought it to us. And that truth comes through several avenues. One, divine revelation in Scripture. And this is where we know the truth that the earth was made in six little days in the Sabbath. That's a revealed truth, divine revelation truth. But the Bible also tells us that we have God revealing truth to us in nature, God's divine nature, seen in what he has made to so that men are without excuse, Romans 1.20. And so we see God's handiwork. And that's another level of truth that we appreciate and take in. And our life experiences taste and see that the Lord is good. Or he said to Philip, Put your hand in my side, stop doubting and believe based on what? Your experience. And so all the truths that God gives us through, no matter what avenue, are parts of this uh, partaking and ingesting that we're to do the bread of heaven that helps build us up and strengthen us. Keep on with the quote If we keep the Lord ever before us, Allowing our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise to him, we shall have a continual freshness in our religious life. Allowing our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise. Now, as I thought about this, and this is what I actually think it means, think about the relationship you have with the person you love the most, your spouse. I hope hope it's your spouse. I can tell you this for me and how it works for me continual freshness, uh, heart going out. As I go through the day, if I see a sunset, but I'm not with my wife, I want to take a picture and send it to her. If I am out and see a... maybe I, You mentioned you had black bear at your house. If I saw a black bear, first thing I want to do is call my wife. Hey, we got a black bear in our yard. I want to share that experience with her. If I... uh driving, and, and I know she's going to be coming into town shortly thereafter, and I pass a, you know, a local law enforcement officer with a little radar gun, I pick up the phone and call her, hey, if you're coming this way, you better beware, there's somebody shooting some radar down here, I don't want to share that with her. It's true. If I see a horrible train derailment, maybe some of you saw that first person I want to call is her. I mean, in other words, because my heart's connected to her, I want to share all the experiences of life with her. If she's not there with me at the moment, I'm, I'm calling her to tell her.
1: Even if you're mowing the lawn,
0: you That's right. If I'm mowing the lawn and see some strange plant I hadn't seen before, I might go and get her and say, look at this plant. Mm-hmm. Is that how you walk through life with God? All day long, you're saying, Lord, look at that. Lord, I know that deformed-looking thing right there, you didn't make that. That's a disease on that plant, that bulging thing. You ever seen a bulging growth on a plant? Mm Mm-hmm. Eden didn't have that stuff. Those thorns, uh, you didn't put them there. Those mosquitoes that keep bugging me, I know they won't be in Eden. But you, you, in other words, and then... You're talking to him today. You ever talk to him about how frustrated you are with traffic? Yes. <laughs> Lord, give me patience. Thank you for this opportunity to to practice love is patient, love is kind. I only send the peace signal.
1: <laughs> or the possibility exists you might be you might be protecting me from what I might have ventured into if I. There
0: you go. The Thank you for this traffic delay, so I won't be. In that train derailment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're watching television, you're saying to yourself, No, would the Lord really watch something? The angels are in my house. So after so this is what I think this means, uh, allowing our hearts to go out in Thanksgiving and praise constantly. It's it's a relationship. And then the very next words in the Christ object lesson, our prayers will take the form of a conversation with God as we would talk to a friend. Yes. 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 That's what prayer is. Yes. That's what it is. And then if you have that experience, notice what comes next. He will speak his mysteries to us personally. Often there will come to us a sweet, joyful sense of the presence of Jesus. Often our hearts will burn within us as he draws nigh to commune with us as he did with Enoch. When this is the truth, the experience, when this is when this is in truth the experience of the Christian, there is seen in his life a simplicity, a humility, meekness and loneliness of heart that show all to all with whom he associates and that he has been with Jesus and learned of him. It's a relationship. Can't can't be in a relationship without being changed by it. I can tell you, Christy has spent many years polishing me up. It's true, it's true. Some of you know me from a long time ago. Yeah. A lot of rough ed- edges she's been working on. God's been gracious and send, sent her to help me. Um, God bless her heart, that's right. Amen. <laughs> okay, um, boy, we're getting low on time, and I have so many fun things to go over in class with you today. The lesson focuses on Monday, our attention to the Holy Spirit, specifically on receiving wisdom from the Holy Spirit. What's the difference between wisdom and knowledge?
1: Wisdom is how to use the
0: knowledge. I like what you're saying. Wisdom is how to use... So knowledge is awareness of facts, data, information. Wisdom is the... How to use... The application. I'm going to say it goes... The application of the knowledge in godly and healthy ways that conform to God's principles and methods. You can have worldly wisdom that you have knowledge and you're using it in a worldly way that seems wise to the world. But what does the Bible say about wisdom of the world? Foolish. Ooh, foolish. It's foolishness. True wisdom uses knowledge in harmony with God's methods and principles. Isn't that true? Yeah. yeah. Okay, and I'm going to skip a quote that I had here because I'm going to move on to some other stuff. Um, there's a quote in the, in the lesson um, from Education, page 225, about that, but we're going to skip that quote. Tuesday's lesson asks us how is God's power expressed in the resurrection of Jesus? That's a question in the lesson. How is God's power expressed in the resurrection of Jesus? It really, it really, this is a great question because it will require you to contemplate what is the cause of death? What is the cause? Why does sin, wages of sin is death. Sin, one full grown. Why, does, why did God say that? to I me? Mean, the day you eat, you will surely die, which many falsely interpret through the false law lens. And the day you eat, I'll be required by my law to kill you. It's not what it says, but that's how they teach it. But it's real important to understand the power of the resurrection. Then You have to first understand, it's like in medicine, first thing you, you learn to do before you start treating, diagnosing. If your diagnosis of the problem is wrong, then your treatment is likely to be wrong. And so the plan of salvation, Christ's death at the cross... His sinless life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that whole, the whole life of Christ is the solution, the treatment, the remedy for the problem, yes? Define yeah. the problem. What's it fixing?
1: Separation from God.
0: Separation from God, she says.
1: Disbelief about
0: God. Disbelief about God? You guys aren't, aren't falling for the old legal trap, are you? <laughs> so, so you're exactly right. Sin... When Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, did God get changed? No. Did God's law change? No. Did the condition of Adam and Eve change? Yes. Something changed in Adam and Eve. So, however you describe the atonement and what God did through Jesus, it is not applied to God. He's perfect, the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. He didn't need anything done to him. He's still perfect, and is flawless, eternally righteous, virtuous, all that good stuff. God's law is flawless. It can't be changed and never will be changed. It doesn't need to have anything done to it. But something needs to be done to and in Adam and Eve, because they're now damaged, broken, out of harmony, that the Bible calls sinful or corrupt. They have to be brought back into harmony with God in heaven. That's what needs to happen. And that's why, now notice what it says. I'll read some scriptures to you. Hebrews 2, and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Notice, his death is destroys Satan and his power. Satan has the power of death. And it frees us who are held in slavery by the condemnation and legal adjudication of God. No. This is what's taught. We're born on death row, condemned by God's judicial system, to an eternal death unless we get the legal payment. That's what the scripture teaches. We are held slavery by our fear of death. What does fear of death cause people to do? What's the, what's the reaction to that?
1: Save myself.
0: Save self. That's the survival of the fittest drive. We are infected with fear and self-centeredness, the survival of the fittest, me first, kill or be killed, and we're held in slavery by that. And how did we get that? How did you become a sinner. Psalms 51 5, you're quoting. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Get your mind around this. Adam and Eve chose to become sinners. No other human being did. Every other human being was born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We we're born with a condition we didn't choose, that is a terminal condition. We're dead in trespasses and sin, and requires a divine remedy so that we are reborn with a new heart and right spirit, aligned with heaven. And if we don't experience that rebirth with a new heart and right spirit gift from God achieved for us by Christ, if we don't, then we remain in our terminal condition that we never chose. We are not born guilty. We're born terminal. And we need a new heart and right spirit. We need to be reborn. So Christ came to destroy him, holds the power of death in his power. Well, eternal life, John seventeen three. this is life eternal. They might know you, they want you, God, in Jesus Christ in all sense. So, eternal life equals knowing God, and that is not cognitive awareness, that's inf- intimate knowledge. We know Him, we're connected with Him. Those who are lost, Jesus said, Get ye hence, you workers of name. I never, I, I, I didn't get your social security number written down. I didn't know it. No, that's not what it means. We didn't have connection, we weren't friends, we didn't have intimacy. You didn't love me. Okay? So, life eternal is loving, reconciliation, and, no, and knowing God as your friend. So if that's eternal life, what's eternal death then? Not knowing God. And what is Satan's power of death then? The lies he tells about God that we believe that prevent us from returning to intimacy and knowledge of God. That's his power. So Christ came to destroy him and holds the power of death by revealing the truth. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And through the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, the lies and the fear of God are displaced and we are won back to trust. That's life, eternal And then it frees us from fear because we've surrendered our life, we're reborn, we don't live in fear of death anymore. And these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Revelation twelve eleven 11, describing the, the, those who are translated. And then in Second Timothy 1.10, it says, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the good news, through his life, he destroyed the death-causing principle, fear and selfishness, and restored love and trust, the life-causing principles. John the Revelator talks about Jesus as, I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Notice what Christ does. Through Christ, he destroys, up here in 2 Timothy, he destroyed death. Death and Hades, death and the grave, are thrown into the lake of fire. God destroys, through Jesus, death. Yes or no? Yes or How do you kill death? (laughs) You're you're, going to kill death. What do you have to bring if you're going to kill death? Life. 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 Get your mind right. God is not the source of death. He kills death by bringing life. And the lake of fire in which death is thrown, what do you think that is? God's presence. God's presence, the life-giving glory, and you read about this all through scripture, the ancient of days takes his throne, and rivers of fire come out from before him, and ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands stand in this fire. It is the infinite life-giving glory of God in Revelation. There'll be no need for a sun and moon to light the place, because God's presence will be his light. The righteous live in it. We will radiate it like Moses coming off the mountain again, like Adam and Eve had in Eden. This is the life-giving glory of God that death cannot exist there. And so death is thrown into the fire of God's presence and consumed with life.
1: I really appreciated it quite a while back Bill, when, you, when you had said, what is the, what is the um, justice for the person who's been murdered, let's say? And when you said to get his life back. That's right. And I, I had never really thought of it that way. You know, we think justice, get the perpetrator, blah, blah, blah. But his, real justice for the person who's dead is to have his life
0: back. And not only that, you think about those kids murdered at Sandy Hook mm-hmm. and other places? If you could offer those families justice, what do you think? And, and I'll give you a choice. We will prosecute and even put in the death chamber and execute the person who killed your kids, or right now I'll resurrect your kids and give them back to you. Oh, wow. Which justice do you think they want? Yeah. It's not even close, is it?
1: No.
0: Do you see the trap of this world? Justice is always seeking to harm somebody else rather than restoring what what was taken. And that's what the the justice of God is. And then about Jesus as our substitutionary sacrifice who fixes the problem that says in Hebrews 5, 8, 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience. His humanity had to grow and develop. He learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, became the source of of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Get your mind. That is That's so profound. Jesus once made perfect. Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless, sinless. Adam and Eve and Eden were created sinless, but they did not develop perfection because they chose to rebel. Jesus, as the second Adam, took up humanity broken and damaged by Adam and then was tempted in every way just like we are, it says, and faced this temptation to act in self-interest But instead, he chose with his human abilities because it says that God cannot be tempted. So his divinity wasn't being tempted. It was the humanity that took upon himself that experienced a temptation like us. And with every temptation, he chose to do what? To love God and trust his Father in every turn. And thus, in his humanity, he developed a perfect, sinless, human character. Character cannot be created by God, even in Eden, even in Lucifer. God can create sinless beings, characters developed by the choices of the individual. And once Adam sinned and corrupted his character, and we're born with a carnal nature, we have no power to develop a sinless, perfect, flawless character. Christ came and took damaged humanity upon himself, and in his human sojourn, faced every temptation and developed a perfectly righteous human character. So that's when he became the source of salvation. And that's why when we accept him in faith, the Holy Spirit takes what Christ achieved and reproduces it in us, and we get new hearts and right spirits. It says, no longer I that live, but Christ lives in heaven, erasing the records of my past deeds. And no, he lives in me. We get, we become partakers of
1: nature.
0: That's what Peter said, yes. This is the real plan of salvation. And so then we think about the power of resurrection. This is the power of God's life-giving design being perfectly restored through the actions and choices of Jesus Christ, the law of life being restored. And this is how Jesus could tell his disciples, and you tell me, I'll ask you some questions. Did Jesus predict to his disciples, recorded more than once in Scripture, that he was going to Jerusalem, was going to be abused, was going to die, and was going to rise again? Did he predict it more than once? Yes.
1: Yes.
0: How did he make that prediction? Was that divine prophetic knowledge given to him like Daniel and John received visions of the future from God? God opened the portals of time and let him see through time to see what was going to happen? Or did, is that how he made that prediction? No. Because if you value Ellen White, she says, and I will give you this quote, this is out of Ages 753, Satan, with fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. He didn't have a vision, a divine vision of the future time that God revealed to him. Then how could he make the prediction over and over that he was going to die and rise again? How many of you can predict what will happen if I let go of this pen? How confident are you? Very Very confident. Do you have a gift of prophecy? It's a future event. Do you have a gift of prophecy here? It hasn't happened yet. If I say in three minutes I'm going to let go of this, in three minutes what's going to happen to this pen? That's a future event. You don't need prophetic gift to predict what happens when you understand the eternal laws of God. And Christ understood he was going to destroy the death-causing principle that Adam put in the species and restore the life-causing principle or God's design law into humanity, and thus he would die, but he would rise again. It was the predictable outcome. You can predict it. Very powerful. Then I want to have to close with this. It was about happening in Ephesus. They were all into magic. Yeah, here it is. The the, the lesson points out um, that in Ephesus, there was a strong interest in magic, incantations, sorceries, and such. The belief that uh, through proper incantations, words, recitations of verbal formulas, charms, and various rituals, um, and talismans, and other things, you could conjure and control spirits to uh, achieve the outcomes that you want. This is the way they were thinking in Ephesus. Have you seen a resurgence in magic, sorcery, and spiritualism in the world today? Yes. And have you also seen a resurgence of magic in the church? Magical thinking in the church? Uh, This idea of incantations. How about this? You tell me if this is magic, magical thinking. You say a prayer, but you always are sure to end it in the name of Jesus. But then you learn... That Jesus never went by the name of Jesus. That's a great transliteration, and therefore your prayers are not heard because you didn't say the right incantation. You need to say Joshua at the end. But then you learn that Joshua is actually a mispronunciation. It's Yeshua, and your prayers have never counted because you've never said it in the right way. And until you say in the pra- in the name of Yeshua, your prayers can't be heard you've not heard this kind of stuff in the Christian church? Yeah, no. That Jesus is the Greek form of the word Joshua. When, when, when Jesus' mother went out and called him for, for, for dinner, dinner time, she never went out and said, Jesus, dinner's ready. She went out and said, Yeshua. thats That was his name. The Greek, the New Testament makes it a Greek transliteration of Joshua, which is Yeshua. And many Christians have gotten very fearful that they have been praying right because they've been saying in Jesus' name, and he never went by that name when he was there, so he probably can't hear us when we say Jesus because he doesn't know that name. He's used to hearing Yeshua. (laughs) This is magic thinking. This is incantation. Folks, any grandparents in here, and and your grandchildren, uh, if you've uh, said, well, you know, I want to be called uh, Grandma, Grandpa, Granddaddy, Poppy, uh, Grandma, Grammy, whatever, and the kids... Are learning to talk, and they don't say it that way. They go, gee, gee, gee. You go, sorry, I can't hear you until you say it right. You haven't said the right word. It doesn't matter how they say it. If they come with love in their arms and want you to pick them up and hold them, does it? This is magical thinking. What does it say about God that he can't hear our prayer with a heart that loves him and wants to be with him because we don't say the right word? It's a corruption. So Ellen White wrote about praying in the name of Jesus and Desire of Ages 668. But to pray in Christ's name means much. It means that we are to accept his character, manifest his spirit, and work his works. Name is about character. It's not the words. That's that's superstition. That's magic. That's incantation. It's about the heart motive and our love for God and other people. That's what it means. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are are not a, a magical thinking being that you are the creator of reality, and we long for your Spirit to bring us back into harmony with how you have constructed life to operate, to eliminate from our minds misunderstandings, distortions, uh, and all the, the carnal desires and lusts and passions of this world, that we can be transformed with character like yours to live the life that you would have us live. We pray in your holy name. Amen.